When I served in the Diocese of Long Island, the clergy were asked to have on file an outline of their funeral service. Why? Well, the bishop didn't want to arrive to be part of the celebration of the burial office and have to worry about the readings, the music, the preacher, which rite, which prayer, the MC, and all the other minutiae that bishops worry about. And Whitney, I want you to know my funeral is already on file in my computer <laughs> under my funeral. Ergo, Hakuna Matata. Now that's assuming that she'll still be the rector here when I die. And also assuming that the new bishop probably won't have anything to do with the service. So what is this to do with this morning? Well, the psalm I have chosen for my funeral is Psalm 139, a portion of which we just heard with a beautiful hymn to accompany it. Now note well the word portion. Why are verses 6 through 12 and 18 through 23 omitted? Would their inclusion lengthen the service? Yeah, I know that's a real concern for the clock watchers. But I don't think so. I read them aloud, and that exercise took just over one minute. So what's the story? Tom Wright supplies an answer. So let me quote Tom from his wonderful and magisterial and transformative book, Surprised by hope. I quote Tom. The merest mention of final judgment has been squeezed out of Christian consciousness in several denominations, including my own. Tom is an Anglican bishop and New Testament scholar. By the cavalier omission of verses from public biblical reading. Whenever you see in an official lectionary the omission of several verses, you can normally be certain that they contain words of judgment. Now, a brief anecdote to follow this. Perhaps I have mentioned this before, perhaps not, but if I have, one more time won't hurt. More than 15 years ago, I began a service on Long Island with the Colic for Purity, just as we did this morning, just has begun every Anglican communion service since the first prayer book in 1549. However, on that particular occasion, I began with a slip of the tongue. And if I had been leading the service this morning and Whitney had been away, 
I wonder if I had slipped in this slip of the tongue whether anybody would have noticed it. However, I began, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom all secrets are hid. Good. Audible guffaws at St. John's Huntington could be heard, could be heard, could be heard from the precincts of the altar. My two acolytes, a husband and wife, both with earned PhDs, one in Anglican church history, could not believe what they had just heard. Who are you trying to fool, Father John? And when you put this gaff within the context of this morning's psalm, the one that I have chosen for my funeral, my misstep is even more egregious and more humorous. Just look at the first five lines. Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You trace my journeys and my resting places and are acquainted with all my ways. To think that I could hide, and I said I could, all my secrets from you. That I might conceal success, uh, successfully my sins. <laughs> In the prayer book office, which I use every day, the antiphon for Psalm 139 is this to be said before the psalm and at the end. Search me out, O God, and know my heart, and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Those last words, lead me in the way that is everlasting, are curiously omitted from this morning. Herein lies a hint. There are things that I have done and will do. Sins that I have committed and will commit. That are a detour from the way that is everlasting. And despite my Freudian slip of the tongue, my Lord knows them all. I am a sinner in need of a heavy dose of forgiveness and grace. And in the accompanying reading from Jeremiah, Jeremiah warns not only Israel but also me, you, that we, shaped in God's image, have been spoiled by sinfulness and need to be remolded by the divine potter so that we might return to that way that is 
everlasting. One of the things that I've written into my funeral is that it be, hopefully, right one, prayer one. Now, this is not because I am an old fuddy-duddy who, you know, has a yearning for those good old days and languishes now in an ancient moldy past who believes that if the 1928 prayer book was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. (laughs) Though that may very well be the case. Rather, it is because as a redeemed sinner, my salvation has been won on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. That though the burden of my sins is intolerable, my Lord has paid the price for all my transgressions. The former Anglican priest and Roman Catholic Cardinal John Henry Newman expressed in the 19th century with great insight why you and I so desperately need far more than the contemporary emphasis and focus on self-esteem why we need a frequent reminder of our sinful selves and an accompanying awareness of the awesome and unmerited gift of God's grace. Newman prayed like this, and I don't mean Newman read this prayer, but actually prayed it. I quote him, Lord, you see not only the stains and scars of past sins, but the deep cavities, the chronic disorders, and which they have left in my soul. You see the innumerable living sins, their power and their presence, their guilt and their penalties which clothe me. Whoa, heavy stuff, no slips of the tongue for Newman. But you might secretly, maybe, you think, be muttering to yourself this morning, I don't need the reminder now. It's the end of summer. Save it till next Lent. But you see, here's the glorious kicker to Newman's prayer. The shock of sudden joy with which he concludes, yet thou comest. Thou seest me most perfectly, yet thou comest. Jesus, my Lord, despite my bumbling error, my arrogant, though subconscious stupidity, my absurd belief that I can possess a secret life that I can hide from you, though there's not a word on my lips that you don't know, 
Though you are fully aware, Lord, that I am a spoiled piece of clay who has followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart, still, Jesus, you come to me. Jesus loves me so much that he will not be satisfied until he has sculpted this impure lump of clay into a living, breathing, pulsating creature who has become a new creation in him because he is in the Messiah. I will arrive, finally, at last, at that moment when my capacity for self-deception, intentional or subconscious, will have been expunged. My rebellious self will have surrendered his arms and embraced his Savior. The beauty, the power, the truth that from the anchor of this psalm and the accompanying uh, uh, reading from Jeremiah lie in the burning and blazing fact that I and so many others like me can enjoy a living and glorious relationship with a divine loving potter who claims my sinful self in such a way that I am no longer a part of the old creation, but born again in the risen Lord, someone to whom Jesus can point and say, behold, a new creation. And if this can be true for me, if I can be part of that new world that is inaugurated in Jesus, if I can be one of his instruments through whom it is happening here and now, even among or amid this present darkness, so can you. Praying this psalm, submitting to this sculptor, being even ever so slowly shaped into his image is a step along the way that is everlasting toward our true inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth. Now let me close by shifting to another metaphor, one that involves music, specifically Frank Sinatra and his rendition of Billy Rose's Without a Song. Without a song, the world is a rather drab place. But when the song issues from the Psalms, from a prophet, from the gospel, 
and proceeds to nourish you and me, then that song contains within it the glory of the world, transcendent glory, glory that unveils itself to others as we subject ourselves to the potter and become angled mirrors who reflect back to God the glory for which we were meant from the beginning. As a friend pointed out to me in in an email earlier this week, God's glory is the manifestation of his perfect and holy character in all of its awesome and majestic splendor throughout the whole of creation. Jesus is the music who strikes a chord in our hearts and awakens our spirits, who calls forth song and art and poetry, who makes new what threatens to become stale with familiarity. No matter what our age, let you and me surrender to the potter, to the one who has searched us out and known us, and let us make our yes to God when he calls. Let us confess unashamedly that Jesus is Lord in the rock certain belief that God raised him from the dead and allow our lives to be molded by him. Let us indeed see that there is something about this potter that is worth staking our lives on as he leads us on the way that is everlasting to a genuine human life in the present and to a complete, glorious, redeemed, resurrected human life in the future. Omit the way that is everlasting? No. Embrace it and go into that world where you and I are being made holy and blameless before God. As Fleming Rutledge and others point out, that is God's great plan and he intends to accomplish it through you and me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.